Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Life is really the accumulation of your ability to be present. While the big moments, the ones that have trajectory impact, are materially different from that nature than, let's say, this conversation. If you're not present, you're going to miss both. And in those ones that are quote unquote big, mechanically, it's the same for this reason. This is the only moment we get. This right now, in absolute terms, is the most important moment. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real Pod. I hope you are doing great. But if you're not doing great, that is, of course, okay too. I actually was not doing too great myself. Around the time I sat down for this interview, which you will hear today, I was feeling really anxious. I just felt like I wasn't in control of my life. I don't know if you guys ever feel that way, but I was worrying so much about the opinions of others, if I was pleasing other people, if I was what they wanted or needed me to be. And as a result, I just felt small and overwhelmed. But I was extremely grateful that the day after I sort of hit the peak of these uncomfortable feelings, I was scheduled to sit down with one of the world's most incredible psychologists to discuss things like anxiety, the power of our mind, our thoughts, and understand how I could feel more in control and become more present with myself and my life. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Gervais. He is a high-performance psychologist who works in the most high-stakes environments, training the mindset skills and practices essential to pursuing and releasing one's highest potential. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, Fortune 100 CEOs. He's been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, ESPN Magazine, and he is the host of his hit podcast, Finding Mastery. Stay tuned throughout the episode because at the very end, I will be announcing a special and free giveaway that Dr. Gervais is offering for real pod listeners. You don't want to miss this. It's going to be great. I'm actually doing it too, so make sure you get to hear that. All right, let's get to the interview. Prepare to be awakened and inspired on the path to unleashing your full potential. Good morning, Dr. Mike Gervais. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining. Oh, my honor. Thank you for including me in your community and what you're doing. I wanted to 
show up fully myself for this interview. I have to say I was a little intimidated, trying to figure out what to talk about, the best questions to ask you. And I figured to kick this conversation off, I felt the most comfortable just leading with my truth. And my truth is that I'm feeling really anxious. I had a little cry last night, felt overwhelmed with life, and it's kind of seeping into this morning. And I thought it would be a good Kickstarter for our conversation to ask you what exactly is happening in the brain, in someone, when they're feeling anxious. Okay, first, cool. When I say cool, it's like, it's so refreshing to speak with people that are honest and, you know, are aware. And so that's like, that's actually something that I think as a model, the world needs because there's so much, I don't know, intensity around needing to look okay or feel okay. And the truth is what is really okay is being real. And so evidence by the name of your. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always joke. I'm like, I'm not the smartest. I'm not the funniest, but I'm the most real. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So, all right. So the question was like, what's happening in the brain? Was that your question? Yeah. What's happening in the brain? Or maybe that's super high level, even just bringing it down to what is happening inside of someone. When they feel anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot, right? And there's two basic types of anxiety. So as a trained psychologist, I'll, I'll parse this out in ways that I think it's really important to think about like the clinical diagnosable stuff and then the layman's kind of like, oh, I feel anxious, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a couple of different ways that we want to look at that. As we get going, we'll talk a little bit more about performance anxiety versus general anxiety and social anxiety. We can talk about all the different types of anxiety. But in general terms, what's taking place is that somehow you've interpreted something to be a threat. And whether it's real or imagined, your mind or even your non-conscious processing, which is like your brain's ability to to recognize smells or sounds or frames of reference or whatever it might be, like quick little hit triggers that you're not even aware of that, ooh, this is important, this is dangerous, this is threatening, this is something I need to prepare for. And so when that happens, your body goes into this really beautiful cascade of change and it's a readiness that you're feeling. So that readiness physiologically in your body is felt like a little uptick in your heart rate, a little kind of uh, change in your breathing rate. Maybe even your body begins to heat up because of the extra work. And then when it heats up, your body is so smart that it says, hey, let's get ahead of that and start cooling down with some little moisture on your skin so we can uh, cool down the system. And there's other things that happen as well. There's some adrenaline that happens. Your brain starts to wonder, what is the danger? So it starts to scan the world for things that could be danger. And then you look at your friend across the way and you're like, that's why, you know, she's thinking about me a certain way or he's thinking about me a certain way. That's the threat. And so our brain is looking for answers for what the threat might be. There's more that goes on to that, but that's the essence of it. And then let's just kind of take that into the more practical sense is that when our brain is interpreting that something is threatening, whether real or perceived, and our body has some reaction to that. Here's the beauty. We get to decide, is it real or not? And if it's real, then we say, oh, all right, my body's doing its thing. If it's not real, then there's plenty of mechanisms that we can pull on to be able to back that response down. Like deep breathing is one of the most ancient signals to our old brain, you know, like, hey, the world is safe. We're okay right now. We have a luxury of taking a deep breath. And then the other part is when your body switched on like that, you also have the ability to say, 
oh, I kind of like this. Or I don't like this. This is too much. It's too scratchy. It's too much kind of irritation. And then so you have lots of control over your responses, even when your body kicks up because you believe that something is threatening, whether it's real or perceived. That's what's called somatic anxiety and soma meaning the body. And then there's another type of anxiety, which is just like a racing of thoughts, a trying to figure it out. And that cognitive anxiety, as it's called, is really about an excessive worry about what could go wrong later. Now, guilty. <laughs> you can have both or you can have one or the other. And so, and each person uniquely has their own experience with anxiety. And you're raising your hand that it's yours is more cognitive. Yes. My therapist used to use the term catastrophic thinking. Mm. So that hits home. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like just what, I mean, it's such a mumbo jumbo word. It's, it's accurate, but it's like thinking about all the things that could go really wrong. Catastrophizing. I wanted to share this moment in my life that I had with you because I would be curious how you'd break it down. But I feel like I can recall the exact moment, at least sports-wise. It went from pure bliss, confidence, this is the thing I love, to overthinking every single thing I did. And it was practice. I remember where I was in the Galen Center at USC, and I stepped the wrong way. Also, I should mention a lot of things built up to this. This was like the final straw that broke the camel's back. But my coach kind of got on my case about the way I moved my feet. I didn't touch the ball. My team didn't lose. And in that moment, I just kind of realized like, wow, if one step is wrong, I'm in trouble. And from that practice on, it was like a door in my mind had opened to these thoughts and these theories and this fear about my volleyball game that I had never had before. Yes. You know, I think what you're describing actually is, well, let me, let me put a pin before I talk about it, is that no one gets through this world without trauma, whether that trauma is big T trauma or little T's, you know? So what you're describing is like a micro trauma, right? So like, <laughs> it's like something changed and it's not like someone died or you witnessed something that was right? But something changed inside you that was so traumatic that it shifted you into hyper drive for fear. And yeah, that happens for sure. Especially when you're in high pressured environments, that there's something that we all need to manage, which is how do we respond when we're letting others down, right? Because that's really what modern day threats are, is letting other people down for the most part. I mean, there are, there are people in the world that are very dangerous. And so I don't want to make light of that by any means. But for the most part, it's like uh, letting people down. Um, that is so true. It's so interesting how I, I would agree that's like the most, when at least when I look at my anxieties, it's letting people down, whether it's on the court or it's in life. Am I not who they thought I was or who they want me to be or need me to be? Wow. I feel like that is, hits it on the head. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when we think about it, it's a bit of a luxury to have that as one of the great modern threats is fear of other people's opinions as, you know, we, we call that FOPO, not FOMO, not YOLO, <laughs> but FOPO, right? Fear of people's opinions is one of the great constrictors of human potential, but it is a luxury. And the reason I say that is because there are dangerous people in the world. There are dangerous conditions. There are dangerous animals in the world. There are food, shelter, safety issues that we need to grapple with. And when we have a sense of security around all of those, then we get to you know, have this other type of fear that we introduce in our lives, which is like, what do they think about us? But there is an ancient thread to it, 
And we think this is like one of those bits of science that you can't really ever prove or yet we can't prove, but we believe that the part of the brain that's responsible for checking in with others was primarily responsible for survival when we were tribal members. And because if we had a real job that required the health or safety of our tribe, our jobs in life right now are total luxury. Being a performance psychologist is a total luxury. Being a psychologist right now might not be a luxury because mental health is, and the echo of mental health is going to be here for a while because of the way the, the world has cracked open, you know, but still in the same way, like there, there's a luxury to this. It's not food, it's not shelter, it's not safety. And long ago when we were tribal members, we believed that that checking in with others to make sure that we were doing the right thing was snapped to both survival of the tribe and survival of self. Because if you and I went hunting or you and I went gathering and we went and did our thing and we were responsible for food for the tribe and I kept blowing it. Every time we went out, I kept dropping the berries or I kept stepping on the bows and arrows and whatever. Like at some point, you know, Victoria, you'd be like, hey guys, like we got to stop bringing Gervais around. Like, <laughs> like he's blowing it for us. I'm having a double time and this, that, and the other. And if I got kicked out of the tribe because of poor performance, that likely meant that myself and you know my immediate family in the tribe were going to really suffer because it's too hard, as you would recognize, Victoria, it's too hard to do anything alone. And certainly the extraordinary, nobody does the extraordinary alone. Nobody does the special alone even individual athletes, right? There are teams, there are family members, there's community members that support and challenge each other to go the distance, to explore the reaches of their potential. So we need each other. And there's a part of the brain that's constantly checking in. Am I okay? It's interesting how our care and concern for what people think about us dates back to what has happened years and years and years ago with humans and how that's evolved, but we still feel it. And it's crazy that the flight in the olden days of a bear or lack of food or water is now the feeling, at least in me, like in a volleyball game when I'm perfectly healthy and my family is there. Yet I feel like my life is on the line if I can't pass a ball perfectly. You know this, though. It's the same circuitry. It's the same networks that are coming alive from the you know, side of a bear or whatever that's being chased by a bear and volleyball. So what's unique is that there's no unique center in the brain that says, Hey, this is the fear of other people's opinions. This is the fear of looking bad. This is the fear of a saber tooth. This is the fear of a bear. Like it's all the same circuitry. And because of that, it's the same type of experience, which is the physiological flooding that we just talked about. But you know what? That's, what's beautiful about the brain. I mean, think about this three pounds of tissue that sits inside your skull that is the most beautiful, the most complicated. We don't even really understand how it works. Supercomputer, to put a um, you know, modern day label on it, that is amazing. And so that's the hardware that's running the show. However, with all supercomputers, without the right software, that hardware is kind of just kind of junky. And so what's the software? It's the way that you use your mind. So your mind is the software that drives the hardware. And if you don't train your mind, condition your mind, examine your inner life to have a sense of how your mind works, the brain will win. And so when you got on the court and your brain is winning, 
because it is doing what it's supposed to do, which is protect your identity, protect your ego. And you don't have the mental skills to be able to manage that or thrive with it or figure it out or get loose and free because of it or with it, then the brain is going to do its job and keep you alive, which is a heightened sense of arousal. And a lot of heightened sense of arousal, it's called chronic stress, too much chronic stress. It's also called anxiety. So yeah, the brain-mind interface doesn't work alone either. It works with environment. And so it's like those three. Your old biology, this old brain that we have in modern times, this junkyard, patchy psychological framework that we haven't really examined and upgraded and trained with the modern day threats. And that's kind of the the, the three legs of the stool there. A lot of what we've discussed so far has this search or fear for negativity or the bad thing, the worst case scenario. Why is it so easy for us to gravitate towards the negatives as opposed to the positives, especially in life? Okay. So if we didn't use the word negative and positive for just a moment, because it's a shorthand for something, if we lost those words and then we used something more objective, we would say that the brain, what it's trying to do is scan the world and find the threats. If we didn't call those negative, we just said, that's the brain's dictum to find all the things that are dangerous in the environment. That's such a big job that the moment that, let's say you're in a relationship and that person had a particular smell to them from the soap they used or whatever, right? And let's say that that relationship went south and there was a lot of emotional pain attached to it. The brain is going, oh, right, that smell up close triggered deep emotional pain. So when I get close to that smell, you don't need to think about it, but when I get close to that smell, I'm going to light up to protect, send signals. So it's actually not negative. It's just the protection mechanisms that are working both in a conscious level, like with through your eyes when you see something dangerous, and the non-conscious, which is this accelerated way of processing all of the bits of information that have ever caused trauma or micro traumas in your life or you know that's been scary or or hurtful. So I would I would say negative and positive is interesting as a shorthand. And if you want to talk about like negative mind and positive mind, I think that there's something there too. But let's just start with how the brain's working is scanning your environment to figure out how to keep you alive, period. And your mind can actually relabel, reinterpret things, override and change that one-time threat relationship to one-time or now-time opportunity. That is totally possible. It's interesting how I said it in a way that is sort of conditioned, right? The negative way of thinking, or you can't be positive. And so much of this is unlearning what we've been conditioned to believe. And when you've mentioned a few times like that choice or your brain's perceiving the threat, but then you can kind of make this decision about it. That's the self-awareness. And I didn't even feel like I had self-awareness till the age of 19 when I actually learned, oh, I can be in control of what's being set up here. It's not just kind of happening for me. And it's, it's wild how it took 19 years of living to become aware. And you know what? It's a life journey. You're 48, still becoming aware, you know? And so that's actually the training of mindfulness is to become aware and awareness of four things, really. I mean, at the center of mindfulness, you can call it meditation as well, but meditation is really training of the practice and mindfulness 
is more of the approach, but you're becoming aware of four things, awareness of thoughts, awareness of emotions, awareness of body sensations, and awareness of the unfolding environment around you. And when you have awareness of those four things, you can pivot and adjust to be in the present moment more often. When you're in the present moment more often, that's where high performance is expressed. It's also where wisdom is revealed. So the way that we get to wisdom, this deeper part of life, right? And, and Victoria, do you know a wise man or woman? You know, like, are you connected to anyone that's got like deep wisdom? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're different. <laughs> because <laughs> what they've done is they've spent so much time in the present moment that they have insights. And insight is like a, aha, like, oh, I see how A, B, and C work together, right? Like, oh, look at that. And then with lots of insight, many insights cobbled together because you've spent a lot of time in the present moment, then eventually you get to wisdom. But the path is really about awareness and awareness of those four things, thoughts, emotions, body sensations, and the environment around you so that you can be and live in the present moment more often. That's kind of the keyhole to all these really amazing experiences that we potentially can experience. So that's like, the so when you say awareness, keep going. (laughs) There's a whole life ahead of awareness training for me too. I know I'm trying. I'm learning all about the egoic mind. It's an animal. And then, you know, if the minute I stop reading or doing my journaling, I just like feel like I lose track. That's why I felt anxious yesterday. I had stopped doing that work for a while and like let life get busy. And then, you know, it bit me in the butt. And so now I'm like, I got to get back on it. But when you mentioned the present moment, a lot of times the present moment can be uncomfortable. And that's why we like to live, whether it's in the future or it's in the past when something good happened. But oftentimes the now is uncomfortable. How can we lean more into that uncomfortability and see the silver lining or have the optimism instead of, oh, well, what if I mess up? What if I don't succeed? It's a a good question. I know you know the answer because of your ability to be an elite program in athletics. You know that inherently somehow you know that you will not be able to express the capabilities that lie dormant inside of you unless you spend enough time in this scratchy, irritable, you know, deep focus, deep now way. And I miss it. I miss it. You do miss that. Too. I yeah. seek the uncomfortability in my life. I try to find it and it's just not the same because when you choose uncomfortability, I could easily put myself in a very uncomfortable situation. I actually did it last night to shake my system, but it's different than when your coach or someone puts you in the situation and you have to sink or swim. Yeah. And so, I mean, I know, you know, it. you've lived it for a long time. It's really from when I hear it, it's like, okay, I know that it's a requirement and it's hard. And I would say, yep. (laughs) You know, like, yep. And I'd say when you are really clear about your purpose in life, you actually can deal with lots of pain. It transforms the way that we work with pain and uncomfortableness and, you know, that internal scratchy, like, oh, this is hard because it's for a greater purpose. And when that purpose is greater than you, then you start to line up some stuff like, you, know, you can imagine a mother or father and their kid is standing in the middle of the street and you know there's a car coming and when you love your child you'll do whatever it takes you jump in front of that car or bus or whatever you know and so you would take that pain for the good of the loved one and so i think part of the problem right now that many of us are feeling and i say right now we are in an unprecedented 
mental health echo. Right now, what's happening for people is anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicide rates are up. Eating disorders are up. Anxiety conditions are up. And so there is a suffering that's taking place because of the perceived and the easy narrative that we've lost control. And so our external world never has to dictate our internal world. We don't have to have that be the case, but I'm not strong enough to have that be in every instance of my life be true. So there are times, even though I spent the better part of the last 20 some years working on my inner life, there are times when something happens outside of me and I get rattled. So I can only imagine what my life would be like if I didn't spend 20 some freaking <laughs> years training my life with the now conditions, like, holy it's so, refreshing to know you get rattled because yeah. we would think you're all knowing, which you are, but still you're human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? No. You know, just all we need to get is my son or my wife on the call and <laughs> they'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah. So no, but I've spent so much time investigating and examining that if I didn't do the work, I'd be, uh, I think I'd be a mess right now is what I'm saying. So I have real compassion for people that are struggling right now because it's happening. and. I'm nervous. I'm scared for what the next handful of years are going to look like for people that uh, are dipping deep into this mental condition, you know, emotional wellness and health issues. Like I'm, I'm super concerned for it. So, and I know you are too. I know that you're aware of how challenging those experiences are. Definitely. How can, if someone's wanting to right now, they know they're suffering, they know they're struggling, try to find that silver lining or train that optimism? How would you define optimism and how can we tap into that mindset? Even I obviously know what it is, but I struggle to embody it. I'm at that place yeah. where I'm aware, but I can't actually put the the walking to the talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, well, okay. That's cool because optimism is a trained skill. It's a learned skill. So anything that's learned, we can train and get better at. We're not born optimistic or pessimistic. There might be some genetic predisposition towards one or the other, but it's not like it's baked. We need to develop it either way. And those are the two options, optimism and pessimism. And so optimism is the fundamental belief that it's going to work out. That's it. It's a fundamental, when you get into a situation, do you fundamentally believe that you're going to figure it out and it's going to work out? And whatever happens that you'll figure that out too, you know how to work with that, whether it's more money, less money, more attention, less attention, that you're going to figure it out. So that's optimism, you know, which is, hey, it's going to work out. And then there's a, this technical term called agency, which is I have the ability to figure things out. So when those two are together, it's really cool, right? And so how do you train optimism? You just find what's good. That's it. And that's a simple little training. It came out of UPenn like 20 years ago. It's called Three Good Things. And you wake up in the morning and you make a commitment to go research. We call it the researcher of amazing become a researcher of amazing and experience three small, easy, simple, true things that happen that are amazing and good in your life. And at the end of the day, write those three down. That's it. And the research around that is really pretty sturdy. That after a handful of days and weeks, people that came into those studies about this intervention that were depressed, it stabilized their depression. Those that weren't depressed, they found an increase in overall kind of wellness factors in life. I mean, it's that simple. It's a simple little intervention. For people that want to do this practice, and I did do this with Nicole, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not writing something down like, oh, I had a bed to sleep on tonight, but it's 
oh, my mom brought water to me at eight o'clock before bed because she was thinking about if I was thirsty. Is it looking for a more tangible good as opposed to a blessing? Yeah, they're closely linked and they're similar structures in the brain. Gratitude is what you're describing. Like I have a bed to sit on or sleep on. That's not bad. That's totally not bad. What we're talking about though, in this experiment, this uh, intervention is that you're an active agent in looking for amazing. For example, someone held the door open for me and we made eye contact. It's, the, it's like that benign, that simple, mm-hmm. but it's a moment that I was with it, right? And so it's when you're looking for something, you're, you're more likely to find it because you're actually attending toward it. Like if I lost my phone and I don't want to look for my phone, I'm probably not going to find it. But if I lost my phone, meaning I lost my sense of hope and optimism, and I go look for things that give me clues to it, it's going to change some stuff. It's so simple, Victoria. It's such a simple little thing. And then if we do it at the end of the day where we write it down, what I found to be useful is you write the thing down and it could be like, I saw an ant, not my family member, but like a little ant, right? <laughs> and, and I saw an ant and then I just had a moment like, God has some humor. Like that's a weird looking, funny little animal. So it could be really small or it could be door opening, it could be whatever. But at the end of the day, you write down the sentence of what it is. And then the emotion that came with that sentence or that experience, that's it. So it's a one word emotion at the end, like for the door opening, like connected, you know, or kindness, whatever. So it's, it's super mechanical, but it's really waking up in the morning, going and finding what's good. Rewinding a little bit to your definition of optimism, my gut, when I hear that definition of everything's going to be okay, is kind of this blind eye to reality, swipe things under the rug, just act like it's going to be okay. And I feel like that would maybe not be the best way to approach something. I would maybe prefer the route of, even if it doesn't work out, something good will come from this. I will learn something from this. Do you think people should have the mindset of everything's going to work out? Because let's be real, we can't control everything and things don't always work out. Yeah, good. You're right on a really important nuance. Let's say you got in a car crash, you know, something like that. It doesn't mean that if you got in a car crash, that your car is going to magically get fixed. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard to figure out where to get the money to fix the car. It doesn't mean that because you're late for work, that you're not going to get fired. You know, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means that, you know what, something good's right around the corner. And I have to play an active role in looking, finding, creating that. And so naive optimism, which is kind of what you're hinting at a little bit, like, hey, it's just going to all work out. That's okay. Let's walk into the street blindly. And, you know, I know it's a lot of traffic. I picture like white picket fence housewife, like our Christmas card's great. No one knows we're all getting a divorce. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like that kind of naivete and naive optimism, as it's called, is really dangerous. And the white picket fence thing that you're just describing is dangerous in a different way. And I want to get to that. But this thought that I'm going to change or he or she in my life are going to change without any evidence of real work happening. It's something that keeps us really stuck in abusive type relationships with ourselves or others. And so naive optimism is really scary. It's a dangerous proposition to work from. And it's it's like a Peter Pan type thing where you're just afraid to really examine the truth of something. And so I'm glad we're talking about it because a lot of times people hear the word optimism, they, they roll their eyes like, oh God, here we go. You know, psycho mumbo jumbo here. We're going to talk about happiness and positivity. Come on, wake up, get with the real world. Shit's heavy out here. Yeah, it is. And so 
if the default though in the psychological framework is things don't work out, you will find a higher rate of depression. You will find a higher rate of internal struggle. Basically you are working from a framework shit don't work out. And if you, if that's the case, then you'll find evidence of that. And that's okay. You know what? Pessimistic people, they tend to um, fall into being lawyers more often, engineers, nothing wrong with that. Life is designed to find the error or the fault or the break. They also tend to live longer because they're, they're, they're finding all the things that could go wrong. So let's go back to the white picket fence thing. It's really scary when people only show you one dimension. That's really scary. So if you can't, and you're, you are, you are dimensional. Victoria, like when I watch what you talk about and how you do things, sometimes you're having a lot of fun and sometimes you're like quirky and sometimes you're really serious and like you're dimensional. So that builds a sense of like, oh, well, she knows herself pretty well and she's actually talking nonsense and the truth and, you know, having fun or whatever. And <laughs> I love that. Rain. I'm talking nonsense and the truth. That should be my new slogan for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I, I, I want to do the same. I'm not, I'm not making light of it. Like I want... I want to talk nonsense and also get to the truth. And I want to have that range. I tend to be a pretty serious person. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate your freedom that you have. Thank you. That means a lot because sometimes that is the thing that I think makes me feel the most vulnerable is I am putting out more than most people do. And sometimes I'll have this moment of the things I share, most people can barely tell their therapist. And I'm putting it out there to everyone to judge and sometimes like last night, it just gets to me, you know, and I have no problem being vulnerable. That's truly the only way I know how to live now. I, I physically can't bring myself to be fake, but there is that fear of the judgment I could receive now is so much greater. Why are you doing it that way? What's your hope? What's your aim? You know, in how I, yeah. In, in being public and honest. I mean, it's, I think it's rad. I think the world needs it. And what, what is your hope? What is your aim? My hope is so that when other people are struggling with the same things I did, they don't have to feel so painfully alone. And that is the cheesy thing people say. So people won't feel alone. But I vividly can remember whether it was disordered eating, depression. Like once again, I don't know why my mind can go to this exact where I was on the bed, what day it was just feeling like I'm the only one with this problem. And so I guess normalizing it and then making it cool, like it doesn't have to be this dark, scary, th sad thing. It can be this fun thing that we're all, we're all having problems with food in our body can maybe make that same person on the bed at night Googling feel better. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And, and why do you want to help others? Where's that come from for you? I, I have the same thing, but like when you examine it, why do you want to make a difference in others' lives? I don't know if I can call on an exact reason other than it brings me joy to see someone tap into their greater potential and understand that they are more than maybe what they think they are. Mm. And in turn, you know, I felt great purpose in what I do because it is not just about me. Yeah. So the, the science of purpose is, you know, there's the three legs to it. And people say, know your why. And, you know, that's, that's super pop psyche, which is cool. It's a cool way to think about it, but it's sitting on the science of purpose, which is the three legs are, it's got to matter to you, your purpose, whether it's your life purpose or your purpose for today or your purpose for the season, whatever it is, 
what is your purpose? It's got to matter to you. No one can give you purpose. The second is it's got to be bigger than you, right? Because to carry you through the hard times, it's got, <laughs> that's where the science sits. And the third is it's future oriented, meaning like, it's not like you get it right now. You have to work towards that thing. And so it sounds like you, your purpose is pretty crisp. And I'll tell you why I was asking that question is about halfway through my PhD program, one of my professors turned mentor uh, introduced me actually to kind of deeper mindfulness training. He said, it was kind of in front of, uh, I think there was about 10 people in the class at the time. And he looked at everyone and we had to go into the middle of the circle to do, do some work. It was like a clinical training class where you had to be the therapist or you had to be the, the, the patient and you had to work on some real stuff in front of your, your friends. And so I was out there being the clinician and he says, so Mike, this is in front of everyone. What makes you think you can help anyone on this planet? Like he said, it was like disdain. And then he looked to the room and he said, yeah, what, what, what do you guys, what gives you guys the right to think that you're going to help somebody? What? Cause you went to school for a couple of years, please. And I was like, yo, yeah, get real here. And so like, it's, I think it's a really, it was such a powerful question for me to examine. I ask that question a lot to people. Like what gives you the right to think that you can do something amazing? And sometimes it comes off like it's kind of bitey, you know, and I just got reminded yesterday that I asked it to somebody and it came off a little wrong, but I'm really curious, like what gives somebody the right internally to say, I can do hard things. You know, I want to help people. I want to whatever, whatever, whatever. And for me, the only way that like gives my, my right comes from, I've done, I've been through some tough times and I know I can do hard things. And so that gives me this freedom, this strong stability to stand from, to leap toward like, man, what do I want to do with my life? I can do, and, and like, so I think you, you and your community would be able to say that they've done some hard stuff and they're craving it. And like, once you know that you've been through some hard stuff, it gives you an incredible base. The, the rest is kind of left to imagination. You know, what do you want to do with your life? I feel like maybe everyone has the right, but not everyone uses that right. Mm. Like what's stopping anyone from going up to a stranger and saying, hey, I just want to tell you your life matters and I hope you have a fantastic day. Anyone could do that, but some people don't feel inclined to maybe share that energy or their experiences. Yeah, because our brain, remember what our brains are trying to do is keep us alive. And if we go up to somebody, we have a moment of vulnerability. Vulnerability is required for growth. Courage and vulnerability, the same coin, different sides. But vulnerability is a moment where you can be publicly ridiculed or scorn or, or actually, you know, in a physical form, you can be hurt in some way as well, not just emotionally. So it's actually quite dangerous to do that. And so the folks that have built this internal conviction that I'm, no, I can, I can do that, then it's, there's incredible freedom. I have a, like a dual part question for you. I don't even know how I'm going to put this into words, but on this note, one of my favorite things to do is force myself to talk to strangers, whether it's, I like your shoes. I like your shirt. Like when I'm in line at Ralph's or Starbucks, I just feel my heart rate raise as I think about talking to a stranger. And that's one of the few ways I can seek uncomfortability in my everyday life right now. So just anyone that's wanting to try that, just test it out. But secondly, I kind of had this thought as I was preparing to talk to you today. And I thought I wanted to talk about how I don't have enough uncomfortability in my life. But then I thought, is that really the truth? Like, Victoria, do you actually master your everyday life right now? 
And the answer is no. Like I have attitude with my family. I'm not always positive. I'm not, I'm not dominating life, yet I feel entitled to these more intense, harder situations. And I can't even master like trivial life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's good. It's yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's good awareness. Uh, wh- what's the question? Because that's a good frame. I guess the question is: Is it harder or easier to be able to master like the day to day life and your interactions with people, or those big moments of Pac twelve championship game or last day in the position battle? That's a cool question. I would say there's a variable in here that we need to consider, which is what do you train and prepare for? And so if you spend 80% of your time preparing for, you know, technical skills to be able to have them on the court, then that will probably be a bit easier than being emotionally available with a family member because you're not practiced at it. How you place your time is also in relationship to what you value. So there is training that goes with being vulnerable right? There's, there's practice at it. Just like there's training to have, you know, one step to the right, you know, and and where to put your arms when you're jumping and all that good stuff. So what are you training for is one thing I would say. And the second uh, layer to that, I would say that when you spend more time in the present moment, you end up realizing that, at least for me, that there's no such thing as like these big moments. There's just this one. And then there's these micro decisions about how you want to be in this moment. And so while you can, ESPN has sold us a different, ESPN and Fox, whatever network has sold us a different deal. They've said the biggest play of the year, the biggest play of the game or the biggest game of the year. You know, this is a life-defining opportunity for this young, whatever. That's, that's not totally true. You know, it's like when you strip it down and you get past the hyperbole and the, the hype and the whole thing, it's like those that master the inner life are those that are living right now, wherever they are. And being present, let's be super crisp. Being present is when your body and your mind are in the same place doing the same thing, right? So when your body and your mind are focused in the same place, focused on the same task, that's being present. And that's available, you know, 1440, you know, 1440 minutes a day, less the, uh, all the time that we're sleeping. So it's available to us, but it requires skill. There's no big moment. There's just this moment. I love that. I just wrote it down so I never forget it. However, I do want to follow it up with one question so I can fully believe in it is don't some moments have the potential to change the trajectory of your life more significantly than other moments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they certainly do. And we can call that big if you want, but really it is what you're describing is that life is really the accumulation of your ability to be present. And so while the big moments, the ones that have trajectory impact are materially different from that nature than let's say this conversation uh, where you and I are having, is that if you're not present, you're going to miss both. And in those ones that are quote unquote big, mechanically, it's the same. It's the exact same as this moment for this reason, is that this is the only moment we get. This is it. This right now, in absolute terms, is the most important moment in my life, in your life too, because we're doing this together. So this is the most important moment right now. So how can something be bigger than this moment? Because it's the only one we have. It's the most cherished. It's the most precious. And it's gone already. And so 
if you're not in this most important moment, what is this other one that we're talking about? It, it Mechanically, it's exactly the same. It's just that more people are watching. It's just that if you make a mistake, maybe you lose an arm. Well, it's still, I don't know where that came from, but you know, those moments are there <laughs> in our lives. fighting sharks. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but this moment right now, in absolute terms, is the most important one we have. So that's the way that I, the philosophy that guides my life, right? And it makes it sharp. Be here now. And I'm not saying that in a philosophical way. I'm saying, no, dude, your job is to be here right now. And that way I end up being there for myself and for others, you know, in more meaningful ways. I love that. I love all of that. The last thing I want to talk with you about is intention setting. This is something that you talk about a lot and I absolutely love it. I have recently shifted from setting goals to trying to set intentions, but I don't feel like an expert whatsoever. So for a beginner, for anyone who wants to set meaningful intentions in their life and be able to follow through with them, how do we take those first steps? What we place our mind toward is really important. So where we place our gaze and the intensity and the purpose of our intention is a really important psychological component. Okay. So training the mind is, I just want to say, there's three things that we can train. We can train our craft, our body, and our mind. And leaving training of the mind up to chance is a mistake for your potential, for you to live a life with meaning and purpose and to explore the upper reaches of your capabilities. And so training the mind is different than reading a book. Training the mind is different than being in a conversation. Training the mind requires a bit of sophistication to be able to walk through on a day-to-day basis and do sets and reps of conditioning your mind. No different than sets and reps in your craft or sets and reps in something that you're trying to get better at. So that's actually why head coach of the Seattle Seahawks and I built a training program you know, to train your mind. It's eight weeks and everything that we've talked about is embedded in there. And we've got incredible practices and people. Nicole Davis, as you know, two-time Olympian, is in that program holding you accountable to do the work, to make the change. And so one of these exercises that we've built into the system is it's called morning mindset training. And there's four steps to it. And so all of these happen before you get out of bed. So the first thing is to take one deep breath. That's it. One deep breath, at least start your brain off with this idea that I'm okay right now. Before we jump out of bed and before we check into what the amazing life of everyone else that's living, you know, what, what their life looks like and all the things that we have to do from our email list or calendar schedule, like take one freaking deep breath, okay? Long exhale. So just double the cadence of your exhale from your inhale. So if your inhale is like eight seconds or five seconds, then have a 10 second exhale. That's one. If you want to do more breaths, totally cool. There's an advantage to that, but at least commit to one. Step two is one clear thought of gratitude. Be really crisp about at least one thing that you're grateful for. But this is not check the box like I'm grateful I have a bed. This is like feel what it's like to have the luxury of a bed. Be the animation of that. And so it's not just kind of a mental checklist. Like really allow that to be part, embody that, if you will. And the third is a clear intention. Now an intention, it's a fancy little word. What does it mean? It means how do you want to do you today? Not what are you going to do, but how? And so for me today, like my intention was to be grounded. That's it. That's my work, to be grounded today. 
And that's how I want to do my life today. So it's a one little word, but then it's not a checklist. It's like, just use your imagination to see and feel a bit of groundedness in the activities that you're going to do later in the day. So this is all happening while you're in bed. Then the fourth is take off your sheets, if you will, and be right where you are. Just take a beat to be there. What does that mean? It's like, if you're fortunate enough to have feet, feel your feet on the ground. If you don't have two feet or, or, or you don't have one foot, like just be where your body is and just take a moment to have your mind and your body in the same place. That's it. Those are the four steps that I start every morning with. And it's a way to prime particular parts of my brain to give myself a shot at, you know, joy, happiness, purpose, meaning, presence. That's kind of, I would call that a bare minimum, great way to start. Still being an enthusiastic student, when choosing an intention, can it be the same one day over day or should we change it every day? How do you choose one? And because I feel like I could see myself setting my intention and then at 12 o'clock being like, I want to change it to this. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I'll just pick up on the word should. Like, like, should I do it this way or that way? Should according to whom? Like, like you know what I say? Free, free it up. Go play. You know, like you want to flip it at, at 12? Cool. Like, is it real? You know, like, can you make a mistake? You can make a mistake. You know, like I said it for being grounded. You know what? That's not going to work for me today. That was, I need to be scrappy, period. And I'm shifting right. Cool. You know, like I'd say the word should, the reason I'm so sensitive to that word is that psychologists are not funny. You know, we're not funny people, really. And the joke about should is um, maybe you should stop shooting on yourself. <laughs> no, it's so bad. That is funny. Group. No, I'm I'm cringing because Nicole has told me to eliminate that word from my vocabulary so many times that I can't believe I just said it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's practice. That's why. That's why. Like, thank you for allowing me to listen with you because we need we need each other. You know, to to hear these things that are sometimes so subtle that we miss them. But yeah, should is this? It's a cognitive distortion. You know, like I should have, and what it what that means? Cognitive distortion. What is that? Should leaves a residue that you're not good enough that you don't know enough, that if you're just a little bit better, you would do it better. Truth is like be an experimenter, being an adventurer, you know, like go, go kind of play with it. And then, you know what I'd love, I'd, I'd love for you to let me know how, how it works. Like if you flip it midday, if you don't know what to set and you just pick one and then it ends up not being true, like, damn, that's the work now. That's the work. I will. I definitely will. Wow. I'm so excited to wake up tomorrow because I want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to wait. You can do it now. You can do it right now. What's your, I will. Let's do it. What's your intention right now for the rest of your day? What do you, what, what's it about? I think my intention is to allow space for my emotions and not judge them. That's rad. Got it. So at the end of the day, like you can go through, like if that's the intention, you know, is space. Right. And then, so then I would say, then you add just a little kind of note where you're using your imagination and you go, okay, well, what am I doing later? Well, I'm going to, I don't know what you're doing, but like, I'm going to have, I'm actually going to go get a journal. I'm, I've been waiting for it on Amazon. It's three days delayed. I'm over it. I want to start doing all this stuff. So I'm going to get in my car right when we're done <laughs> with my oh, mask. So then, so then let's play this out. Like there's no real stress. Well, actually sometimes there's a little stress right now and going shopping somewhere. So let's just imagine though, like being open for emotions when you get in your car, how would you do that to be open for emotions? I think the first thing I would sense myself saying is I can't believe it's the middle of a Thursday and you're not working. You're getting in the car to go run an errand. 
That would be my first judgmental. <laughs> yeah, right. Thought. So then, just, and then you, okay, good. So you got this little judgment critique sitting <laughs> on your shoulder. Like, I, I want to share your funny story about a shit bird in a minute. Um, a volleyball player taught me this. And so, so you got this little, we'll put a placeholder in it right now, a little shit bird on your shoulder saying, you know, what are you doing? And then, so then you want to have space to feel the emotions that come from that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then when you feel them, then what happens? I just want to approach them with curiosity and not be so mean to the thoughts and attach labels to them. (laughs) Yeah, good. So this is how you get better at, so life is an emotional thing, right? Like life is emotional. Like that's why we have them, but we don't practice them. How are you going to get good at life if you only have like one emotion, numbness? Like how, really? People say, what do you want in life? I just want to be happy. Not true. You mean when... Your loved one dies, you don't want to feel sadness? Really? You know, you don't want to feel a little heartache when something doesn't, you know, kind of work out? Like, you just want one, you want to be muted with one emotion? Just happiness for everything? I said, I, I don't want that. I, I really don't want, I want to have range for all of the emotions. And I want to have the ability to feel and learn and experience the fullness without getting lost and caught in those rapids that want, at one time in my life, took me away from the present moment. Like I would wake up in the morning when I was your age. I remember having like 15 things flooded all in the same moment. My, my body would end up, I'm brushing my teeth and my, my hands are kind of shaking and I'm, not, I'm just so agitated. I got so much to do and I feel overwhelmed. Like, I don't want that anymore. You know, that's, that's kind of why I've gone in this, this beautiful science of psychology is so important, right? We, I think we all need it. That being said, let me, t- uh, let me wrap this up with the shitbird here is that it was a volleyball player that taught me this. We're talking about self-talk and you know, kind of going through it. And she goes, oh, I know what this is. I got a bird that talks shit to me all the time. <laughs> super creative. This is a super creative athlete. And she says, um, you know what? That bird, it lands on my shoulder and it shits all over me all day. <laughs> and, and like I, I, at the end of the day, I'm a mess. I stink. I don't feel good. I, gotta, I feel like I'm just, you know, I've, I got shit on all day. And so she goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a relationship with this shitbird. And so what she's, you know, the shitbird is the shit talking, right? Mm-hmm. And so she says, I'm just going to build a relationship. And so next week, you know, she comes in and she's like, guess what? Half the time, half the time that bird is on my shoulder because when it gets on my shoulder, I'm just kind of wiping it off. Like I'm literally saying, and then she comes in, uh, you know, a bit later, a couple sessions later, and she comes in, she says, I see it in the trees. And I look at it and I stare it down. It doesn't even land on my shoulder anymore. And so it's a fun way of thinking about like, we're so busy talking shit to ourselves that we're just leaving ourselves messy, you know? So anyways, maybe that's a fun way to play with this serious note of our self. Yeah, it is. I love that. I'm going to be trying to make friends with my shit bird today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we Thank go. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege, truly a privilege to talk with you. So I really appreciate your time and so much wisdom you've shared. This really, I feel like has changed the trajectory of my day and possibly my life. And I'm sure you know that you do that a lot. So thank you. (laughs) It's a big moment. It's just another moment. (laughs) Very true. Thank you so much for listening to this episode today. I want you guys to be a part of this special giveaway that Dr. Gervais is offering. So make sure you are following the RealPod Instagram account to see this 
free mindset mastery course that Dr. Gervais is offering. It is a $500 value and he is giving away two of those for free who've listened to this podcast. So head over to the RealPod Instagram and make sure you follow the requirements of the giveaway, which include following Dr. Mike Gervais. His Instagram is at Michael Gervais and also his podcast, which you guys, it's incredible. It's called Finding Mastery. You can find it on Instagram at Finding Mastery. Dr. Gervais is being so generous and offering at a $500 value, two free mindset courses. I'm actually getting one myself. Thank you. Shout out Dr. Gervais. I'm so grateful (laughs) you're giving me one. And two of you can do this alongside me at the same time. So I'm really excited that three of us get the opportunity to take this super special course. So don't forget to follow the RealPod Instagram to find all that information. And also, if you enjoy this podcast, rate, review, subscribe. It would just mean the world to me. I really appreciate you guys listening and just coming every week, knowing that you guys support the pod and you're enjoying it means the world. So if you're having a good time too, just leave a little review, give it a rating and thank you so much. I will see you guys back here next week. And as always, keep it real.